I have a very serious message on my heart tonight, and um, I want you to pay real close attention because I don't want anybody to leave confused about what I'm going to say. Um, but it's something the Lord has been working on my heart with for several weeks. I preached at my church on Sunday night, preached it again last night in Dalton, and I feel like this is what the Lord wants me to deal with this evening. First Kings 19, First Kings chapter 19, be turning there. While you're turning, I just want to go ahead and ask the Lord to help us tonight and meet the need of this hour. First Kings chapter 19, Heavenly Father, I love you. I want to thank you for this great opportunity and this great privilege to stand and preach the Word of God. I don't ever want to take what I'm doing tonight lightly. I deserve to be in hell tonight, and I deserve the judgment of God upon my life. And almost 22 years ago, you reached down and picked me up and set my feet on a solid rock and established my goings and changed my life. Lord, tonight I pray that you would help me to be your vessel tonight to do your will. Help my thoughts to be clear. And I pray touch my lips and help me to speak the truth in love tonight. I pray you'd open our hearts to receive the word of God. And I pray this evening you'd do a heavenly and holy work in our hearts and lives tonight. Concerning the subject matter, Lord, I pray that you'd make it very clear. You see where your people are at tonight. And I'm asking you this evening to meet them at that appointed place. And I pray that you'd meet that need in their heart this evening for Jesus' sake and your glory. And we'll thank you for all you do in Jesus' name and all God's people said. First Kings chapter 19, let me say a few things on the outset. And um, I'm going to have to preach fast, so I want you to listen fast. And uh, we'll, we'll get to where we're going. But three things. Number one. Anything I say about myself tonight in this message, I'm not saying it for any self-glory or gratification. I don't need you to come to me and pat me on the back and feel sorry for me, pin a rose on me, hug my neck, and just, man, the ministry just must be. Look, I love what I'm doing tonight. I believe it is the greatest privilege that a man has this side of heaven uh, to do what I'm doing. I believe that. I'm honored to do it. And I thank the Lord for it. But the best illustration I know that I have is me. All right? And uh, there could be some things I may say about your pastor, not personally, but just as the ministry is concerned. Second of all, um, I will read just a little bit of an excerpt out of a book uh, that helped me with this subject. And I usually don't do that while I'm preaching but I felt that it was needed in what I'm dealing with, and so I will probably do that. So don't let that bore you. It's not very long, but I just want you to understand what I'm going to be doing. Number three, and this is important. If you possibly could, could you please dismiss everything you've ever heard about First Kings chapter number 19 from your mind for just a few minutes tonight? And let me have your attention concerning this text this evening. I will say this, there's been things that I've preached out of this text that tonight I stand before you and have to say that I don't know that I would go back and ever preach that same way again from this text. I'm not changing my doctrine, I'm not changing what I believe about the King James Bible or about how you get to heaven or about uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but sometimes as a preacher, as you grow, you understand that you've read a text and maybe you have read something into that text by what you have heard other men say. You have read something into that text by a mindset you go into that text with. And so therefore, you've already got a foredrawn conclusion or foregone conclusion about what that text means. And that's not always the case. So as we approach 1 Kings 19, this is a very familiar text to you and I understand that. So please, if you could, 
please don't have any pre-drawn conclusions over what this text means. And let me say some things too tonight. Let the Holy Spirit say some things too tonight from this text. I'll read five verses for sake of time and then we'll get right into the message. Look at verse one. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Please remember that. It's going to be very important in just a few minutes. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, I find that interesting. I used, I, I, I used to think that he just heard something, but I'm persuaded tonight that not only did she send word to him, but she wrote it down. She made it known. And the Bible said when he saw that, he arose and went for his life came to Beersheba, which belongeth unto Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. Now watch very closely. And said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. F.W. Borum said these words in one of the chapters of his books. He said this, he said, Nerves are a nasty thing to argue with. They never play the game fair. The facts on which they base their contentions are totally unreliable and the conclusions that they erect upon that treacherous foundation are, as you discover afterwards, preposterous and grotesque. The pity is that when you do not, the pity is that you do not notice the absurdity of these deductions at the time. At the time, you accept all their statements at face value. You listen to their doleful inferences with as much respect as if you were bowed in the presence of an oracle. We're not going to probably shout a lot tonight. And I'm not going to get in a big way probably. If you've never dealt with your nerves you've probably never done a whole lot for God. And I want to preach tonight on this thought, don't lose your nerve when your nerves break down. Don't lose your nerve when your nerves break down. 1 Kings chapter 19 is always, there's always been a little issue with this chapter with me. Not that I know any more than anybody, not that I claim to have some new revelation, but when I would hear things said concerning this text and how that 
it was uh, Elijah was accused of throwing a pity party under the juniper tree for himself and how that uh, he needed to kind of pull himself up by his own bootstraps and take responsibility and get back in the fight. And then when God told him that there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed their knee to Baal and, and I've heard men say that God was rebuking him and he needed to get back in the fight, there's just something that never set well with me in that place. A Bible college professor one night when I was sitting in class he made note of the fact that Elijah said in verse number four, he said, uh, Oh Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. It seems as though there's a mindset in this man that there's something churning in him that has happened, uh, and he feels as though he has failed. Not that God has failed, but somehow he has failed. And Elijah is at the point of a nervous breakdown in his life. Nervous breakdown by definition is this. It is a period of mental illness resulting from severe depression, stress, or anxiety. We ain't supposed to be talking about that in church, are we? Those are dirty words in church, right? Because, I mean, if you have faith, right, I mean, you're never going to be depressed. And if you have faith, you're never going to have anxiety. And if you have faith, you're never going to get stressed out. You've never parented children, have you? You've obviously never pastored an independent Baptist church. And it's not just pastoring a church, it's loving the people that you pastor. That's by definition what a nervous breakdown is. When I, mean, when I make the statement to lose your nerve, that statement means to lose means to be deprived or to cease to have or retain something. That's what we find going on in Elijah's life. He is ceasing to have or to retain life because somewhere he has been convinced by somebody that he is a failure. Probably nobody here deals with that but me that you feel like a failure in every area of your life at times, no matter what you do and how much of yourself you give and how much that you try to succeed, it seems as though you do nothing but fail. That's where he's at. He said, I'm not any better than my father's. Just go ahead and take away my life. He wants to cease to retain. He is at a point to where he seems like everything has come against him. He's overwhelmed. He is under a load of stress. He is, seems to be depressed. He's full of anxiety. You say, I don't believe that. I'm not done yet. I'm going to prove it to you. Look up here, Christian. Just because you're saved, that doesn't exempt you from depression, stress, or anxiety, and it doesn't mean that you don't have faith in God. Now, I told you, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to divorce yourself from the, some things you've heard from this text to go with me for the next 30 minutes or so. I need you to pay close attention. So the, the, the question that the text presents us with is this. If a man, we're not talking about some greenhorn here. 
We're not talking about the new kid on the block, the young preacher in the church. We're not talking about, we're talking about God's man, Elijah. We're talking about a man who knew about the power of God. We're talking about a man who had a prayer life. When's the last time you prayed 63 words and fire fell out of heaven and God used your life like he used the life? We're not talking about some greenhorn who didn't know God. We're talking about a man who knew all about God. We're talking about a man of great faith, a man of great character, a man of great power, and he got under such a load that he had a nervous breakdown. How do you deal with that? Well, the question in the text would have to be this. How did Elijah arrive at this place of a nervous breakdown? Number one, I would say this to you. This is deep. Don't miss it. He was human. He was human. Could you do a little project with me? Could you do something with me to find out if we're all on the same planet and breathing the same air? Could you take your left hand and just hold it out for just one second? Take your right hand. This is deep now. Stay with me. And just reach over to your left hand and pinch it. Do you feel that? If you do, you're human. Can I remind you in the day and hour we're living in, Spider-Man, Superman, uh, the Incredible Hulk, you are not a superhero. God didn't design you to be a superhero. You're not a robot to just be mechanically to do and go and, and you not be affected. Honey, you are a human being and you're affected by some things. Three things humans are subject to. Number one, you're subject to the elements of the world. You have to live in the world, deal with the world. You have to do business with the world. And sometimes, honey, the world just seems to conquer who you are as a human being. You don't fit in this world. And not fitting into something brings pressure and it brings stress into your life when you don't fit in. And if you're an old-time Christian, you do not fit in. You're not only subject to the elements of the world, but you're, ex- you're subject to the extreme contrast of your feelings and emotions. I know we're not saved on our feelings, but if, you don't, if you've never felt salvation, you've never got it. I, I, are you listening to me? I'm telling you tonight, you, it, it does feel good to be saved. Are you listening? I know I have eternal life. I know if tomorrow never comes, I know who holds it. I know he's holding my hand. He speaks to me. He guides me. He comforts me. It feels good to be saved, but you hear me. God made you an emotional person. And there are highs and there are lows in your life. It would shock you to know what your pastor has to go through on a daily basis. You wonder why sometimes he may not answer your phone call? Because he's just talked to five people and here's how it goes. One person calls him and they say, Preacher, you're not going to believe what just happened. And they're squalling on the other end of the phone, on the other end of the line. And they're telling him about a tragedy or a situation or a family member or a child. And they want him to feel that and weep with them and pray with them. Five minutes later, he gets another phone call. Somebody on the leather line says, preacher, you're not going to believe this. And they're shouting the victory. And they want him to rejoice with them and pray with them and rejoice over the victory that God has given to them. Five minutes later, after he hangs up from that phone call, some preacher calls and tells him what they've heard about somebody else. And they tell him about some valley. They're going, are you listening to me? I'm telling you, friend. And in five phone calls, listen, he may get up at seven in the morning. His plan is to 
read, pray, and study, and meditate through the day and prepare for the work of God on Sundays. And honey, by, I'm telling you, by 8.30, he's had two or three phone calls that have changed the course of his day. He never makes it to the Bible. He never makes it to his prayer closet because he's got to go to the hospital. He's got to come over here to the house of God. He's got things that people have demanded of him. Hey, can I say to you, listen to me, I don't even know, I don't even know this for sure. I just know it in my own life. But it would shock you how many Saturday nights that he's set up all night long. Not because he's been lazy through the week and not because he's not tried, but because of the demand of the pastorate is so heavy at times and the pull in other areas and what people need that he sets up all night on a Saturday night coming into a Sunday morning and he walks in here not rested physically and not rested mentally because he's set up in the pages of the word of God. So when you put these young people on the pew, he's got something to put in their heart for the glory of God. Stress. And I've never heard him complain. Feelings and emotions. You better understand you got them because the more you deny it, the worse you'll get. Number three, as a human, you're subject to the endless war on your mind. You hear me right here? Your mind is the devil's biggest playground. Is anybody listening? Because this is where I'm going to sit down for just a moment because this is where I think it begins in Elijah's life. I think, Brother Laddie, when we get to 1 Kings 19, I'm going to prove it to you in just a minute, okay? But when we get to 1 Kings chapter number 19, the stress of the ministry is already there. When you get to 1 Kings chapter number 19, I think the anxiety is already beginning to spring forward and it's already on the surface. But the depression sets in in 1 Kings chapter number 19 and the man of God gets to a place where his mind is working overtime on him. And honey, you hear me tonight? The devil can no longer get your soul this evening if you're saved by the grace of God. But I'm telling you what he's after tonight. He is after your mind to confuse you, uh, uh, to bring stress and depression and anxiety upon you, uh, uh, to keep you uh, unfocused Focused, and if he can get you in a place where you're not focused on Christ, if he can get you in a place of worry, I promise you, you're not focused on what God wants you to be focused on. He's after your mind. Your mind is the devil's biggest playground. Now tonight, I don't have time to do this, but listen to me. Have you ever went through your Bible and just thought about how many times the Bible mentions your mind? I'm talking about significant scriptures. I won't quote them all, but I do want you to, I want you to hear one. If you get time tonight, read Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you. If you get time, read 1 Peter 1, 13, Romans 12, verse 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 2, 2 Timothy 1, 7. But listen to Romans. Listen to the great apostle Paul and what he says about the mind. Romans 7, 21 through 23. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Has anybody ever lived on that street? Has anybody but me ever lived on that street in your neighborhood? 
Paul said it is a law. So you know what that means? It's going to always be that way. When you, and listen, why do you think it is, friend, when you get up and purpose in your heart that you're going to read, pray, and study, all hell meets you at the place you're going to do it. Your mind goes crazy. You can think of 702 things you need to be doing. Somebody calls that never calls. The cat throws up on the carpet. The dog goes crazy in the yard. The kid's getting a knockdown, drag out fight. Your wife wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and she never does that. But she does that morning and all hell opposes you. Just get used to it, honey. It's going to happen every day. You want to do something for God. You know what people tend to do right there? They give up instead of going on. He said, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Listen now. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Listen to verse 23. But I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, if that had been me saying that, you might could just dismiss it and say, Brother Brown's carnal, he's fleshly, he's worldly. I knew he always was. And I'd say, hey, that's fine. That ain't me saying that. That's the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost said that there is another law in my members and he said it's a warring against the war, uh, warring against the law of my mind bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Your soul is saved but your flesh is not. Are you listening? Your mind. F.W. Borum and John Broadbanks were contemporaries. They pastored close to each other. And every, every Monday morning after the Sunday services, these two men would get together, they would share breakfast, and they would go on a walk, and they would talk about the Lord's Day and what God was doing in their churches. On this particular day, uh, John Broadbanks had showed up and F.W. Borum made the statement that he looked like that his face was drawn, that he had been up all night. He said he looked terrible. He said he tried to get him not to go, but he uh, pressed on and he went on this walk anyway. And he began to ask him, he said, John, he said, how are you doing? He said, you don't seem like you're doing good. And here's what John Broadbanks said. He said, I had a horrid night. I supposed it was a reaction after the work yesterday. I had glorious services, especially in the evening. I think my sermon last night was the best I preached at Silver Stream yet. But in the course of its delivery, I made two ridiculous mistakes. Now, here's his two ridiculous mistakes. You're never going to know this unless you preach or especially you're a pastor. He said, I misquoted a passage and mispronounced a word. I misquoted a passage and mispronounced the word. Now, most of us would just think ain't no big deal, and that's what he said. He said, I ought to, of course, have known better. I thought I knew the passage perfectly and did not trouble to rehearse it. And as for the word, I never intended to use it. It came to me in the spur of the moment, and I had blurted it out before the question of its exact pronunciation occurred to me. Neither blunder seemed to matter much, and it is very possible that neither was noticed, but... As soon as I laid my head on my pillow, 
Both these wretched things were up and at me. He said, when I first discovered the mistakes that I had made, they looked to me like two small pimples on a very pretty face. But as I tossed to and fro in the darkness, the pimples grew and grew until there was no face left. It seemed to me that the impression created by those two hideous blunders had more than obliterated the good effects produced by the services of that day. He said, I saw all the young people of the congregation giggling at my stupidity. He said, I fancied and saw their parents rebuking the levity of their sons and daughters and saying all they could uh, to curb uh, my ignorance. But I could see that in their hearts these good people pitied me and wished that they had in their minister a man who could command their children's respect. My brain was on fire. I tossed about for hours. I felt that I could never enter the pulpit and face the same people again. I see this morning the absurdity of my distress. But as you probably know as well as I do, you can't argue with your nerves in the night. Here's what Borum said. Some of y'all have been there. Some of y'all are living there now. And some of y'all are headed here. He said precisely, You lie still and you listen to them. They make the wildest statements and you believe them. They draw the most alarming deductions and you accept them. They know uh, that you are too tired to fight and they take base advantage of your weariness. They shout and scream and scold and you, you yield your lacerated soul to their mercy. In the morning, you look back with contempt upon your own cowardice. You thirst for revenge, but it is too late. Your tormentors have slunk off to their lairs and wait. For another chance. Hey mom. You need to understand something. You're human. God didn't call you to be super mom. He called you to be mom. You're human. Wife. You're human. You need to put some of them better homes and gardens magazines down and realize. You're human. You're not a robot. That's a book. That's a setting they've designed. That's not you're going to be your house all the time. Hey, Dad, you need to realize you're human. Hey, husband, you need to realize you're human. Preacher, don't ever forget. You're human. He has feelings and emotions just like you do. She has feelings and emotions just like you do, ma'am. They hurt just like y'all hurt. Sir, your wife hurts like you hurt. Ma'am, your husband hurts like you hurt. You know why? Because we're human. We're human. And you think what you want to about Elijah after this sermon was over. But I'm going to tell you what, Eli- what God knew about Elijah. He knew what he was made out of. He knew his frame and he knew he was human. That's why God didn't throw him away when he had a nervous breakdown. He's human. Man, i got to hurry. Listen, listen. He was human. Number two, he was not only human, but I'll tell you how he got here. He was heavily burdened. Heavily burdened. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever considered everything that's gone on in Elijah's life till he got up to the point of 1 Kings 19? Let me tell you real fast. For more than three solid years, the sole responsibility of a great national crisis rested on his shoulders. I'm not talking about 
a personal crisis. That's bad enough, Brother Danny, a personal crisis. Everybody's probably been through one of those personal crises. Feel the heaviness, feel the burden. We're not talking about a personal, a national crisis. Elijah, God told Elijah, said, you walk out there and tell him it ain't going to rain for three years. He said, okay, it ain't raining for three years. That wasn't Elijah's fault, it was God's, but they blamed him. Can I just say this? You take your, you take your personal situation and you take that personal stress and, and you take that personal, tra- whatever it is, and when you get it to his life, you multiply that times about 10,000 and you'll get close to what he goes through. Because now it's not just about Miss Nolita, it's not just about Celeste, it's not just about Noel, it's not just about them four, but honey, I'm telling you, you got a man of God here that cares about your well-being, that cares about your children, that cares about your spirituality, that wants to see you walk with God. And I promise you, you'll never know till you've walked a day in his shoes and slept in his bed and pillowed your head on his pillow and walked down his hallway and laid in his study with him to know the burden and the heaviness and the stress and the responsibility that God's placed upon you, man of God. National crisis is resting on his shoulder. I got to move. Number two, listen. Every man's hand was against him and the king had put a price on his head. Welcome to serving Jesus. All he's done to this point is do exactly what God's told him to do and they hate him for it. 75% of you don't know what that's like. I'm not being mean. I love you. And I know most of you well, but I'm just telling you tonight, listen to me. If you're not filled with the Holy Ghost, if you're not making a difference on your job and in your family, and honey, I want you to know, even if you're doing that tonight, you're never going to know what it's like to stand here and preach what God put on your heart and then have people that you love and have prayed for and cared about turn their back on you and hate you because you told them what God told you to tell them. Number three, here's what I... For months and months, all Elijah's done has lived from miracle to miracle. Somebody said, man, that sounds great, preacher. I'd love to do that. Woo! I mean, the miracle life, really? Let me tell you how you can experience that tonight. Brother Gravel's been telling me, you know, y'all are trying to figure out what you're going to do. He's wanting to build seven auditoriums and two gymnasiums and pave the parking lot and, you know, all this stuff. So here's what I want you to do. If you think living from miracle to miracle is so exciting and it's not taxing, get your checkbook out tonight. Write a check to the Bible Baptist Church or Eric L. Brown, whichever one, it doesn't matter either way. And write it for every last cent you have in your checking account, savings account, 401k. So that when you leave here tonight, you have nothing to rest on but God alone. And for the next week or the next month, the next year, just keep doing that. So when you leave this place, there's nothing you have to fall back on but God himself. Somebody, I seen a thing on Facebook, an advertisement come up the other day. And and it said this, it had pastor on the back of the shirt. So it was interesting. I thought, well, I'm going to see what this dummy says. It said pastor. In it, for, not, in it for the outcome, not the income. And I said to myself, that person who designed that shirt needs to sue their brain for non-support. 
Hello? I know, Brother John, what they meant. But I also know what a lot of men have went through. Are you listening to me? What I'm trying to say to you tonight is, honey, listen, you want to live the miracle life. You don't think there's stress. You th I know you see Brother Ricky up here. Man, and man, he's doing the preaching and everybody's watching him. And, and man, the, everybody talks about Bible Baptist Church so they talk about Dr. Gravely. And man, this is Dr. Gravely's church. He knows it ain't his church. Uh, he knows what God's doing here. I've never heard him say anything superficial. I've never heard him take the credit for anything. I've heard him give a lot of you credit. I've heard him brag on a lot of y'all. But I want you to understand something, honey. As soon as something goes sideways, guess who gets the blame? They ain't come and talk to you, Brother Danny. They ain't come and talk to you, Brother Laddie. They ain't want to talk to the deacon board. Soon as something goes awry. So the next time somebody brags on your preacher, don't get all sideways because they said something good about Brother Ricky because as soon as something goes bad, that's the man they want to talk to. Stress. <laughs> Sir, do you know why your wife meets you at the door at times and tears running down her face and she just hands the child to you? It's not because she's trying to be a rebellious wife. Most of the time it's because she's not had an adult conversation in three days. All she's heard is kids crying. All she's done is change diapers. All the laundry done is pile up. The dishes in the sink. Can't get the floors vacuumed. Everything around the house is falling apart. And she's had just about all she can take. He lived from miracle to miracle. Go ahead, try it. We'll pass off from place. Say, man, I, I mean, it's got to be something to live on them miracles. It's stressful. I don't care how much faith you have. It is stressful. Let me hurry. I'm, I'm just going to skip this, but let me tell you this. Then comes this whole ordeal with Mount Carmel. Think about it. First of all, you have the renunciation of the people of all their foreign gods. Revivals broke out. They're denying all the gods. <laughs> I'm just going... Man, hallelujah, finally. And then there's the destruction of all the priests. And then after that, there's the breaking of the drought. Hallelujah, revivals broke out. He's fixing to start out and he turns around to walk off and somebody puts a document in his hand signed by the queen and it said, by this time tomorrow. You ever put your hand on top of the mountain to find out it wasn't the top of the mountain? You ever turned the corner and felt like you could see the end of the valley and realize once you got around the corner it wasn't the end at all? I'm going to tell you where he's at. He's at a place to where he came to where he just he couldn't stand anymore. That's hard to take, ain't it? Because Elijah's such a great man. And we revere him so much that we just do not think that that kind of man, that caliber of a man can be dealing with a nervous breakdown. The one thing I'll say about this next point is this. He was helplessly barren. Can I say to you tonight, could it be said that Elijah was driven to despair not by his foes but by his friends? Brother Blake? First time I found out that there were 7,000 people that had not bowed their knee to Baal was when God told him that and he was in that cave. And if that's the first time I found out about it, it's highly probable that that's the first time Elijah found out about it. You say, I don't believe that. Well, let me give you a way to believe it. Where were those 7,000 when he's up there dealing with those prophets of Baal 
And where were those 7,000 when he's praying? Where were those 7,000 saying, hey, preacher, we're with you. Hey, man of God, we're behind you. Throw a couple down here. We'll handle them. They're nowhere. That's where they were at. They're nowhere. He might not have been where he was at because of his enemies. It might have been because of his friends. When you get to a place in life sometimes and you think you've been forsaken by every friend you've ever had, sometimes it's hard to take. Number four, I'm done. He was human. He was heavily burdened. And he was helplessly barren. But I'm glad the chapter doesn't end there. You keep reading this chapter, here's what you'll find out. He was still heaven's greatest tool. Heaven's greatest tool. Borum said, when a man's nerve is shattered and he has come to the end of everything, he needs a gentle and restful companionship. And honey, if you don't think God doesn't know that, you don't know the God I serve. God knew exactly what Elijah needed. He knew exactly where he was at and he knew exactly what he needed. Let me be clear with this one statement before I finish this sermon. I want you to understand this was a nervous breakdown, not a spiritual one. I'm going to prove that to you. It was a nervous breakdown, not a spiritual one. Let me show you one reason I know that, Brother Laddie. Elijah ran just like the prodigal son ran. But the difference in Elijah and the prodigal son is that heaven treated Elijah like a patient, not like a prodigal. Let me show you. Number one, I'll tell you what heaven did for Elijah. Number one, heaven sent an angel. Heaven sent an angel. Verses 5 and verse 7, you'll find an angel. Elijah's passed out under the stress, under the load, under the heaviness of what's been going on. He's laying under a juniper tree. And can I just say this right here? If he was throwing a pity party, I'd like to throw a pity party where the angels of heaven's going to show up in it. We better start thinking about what passages of Scripture are really saying to us, what God's trying to express. It hit me, and I'm telling you, I had a fit in understanding if that man of God uh, could go through what he went through, and he did. Uh, it reminds me, I'm just flesh, and God knows what I need, and he knows where I'm at, and he's willing to help me if I let him help me. <laughs> he sent an angel, which is heaven's messengers. And he told Elijah what he needed to hear and he gave Elijah what he needed in, in his life at that moment. God, heaven sent a messenger, sent an angel. Elijah felt like he had nobody. That's what he's saying. That's what he tells God here in just a minute. So you know what God did? The first thing he did is show Elijah, you still got somebody. You've still got somebody and I've got a word for you. Second of all, if you read your text, just go down through there and read it. The second thing you'll find that heaven sent was food and fire. Food and fire. Bible said that the angel tapped him and he woke him up and he said, arise and eat. Elijah turns around and he's already got a glass in his hand. There's a cake baking on the coals of fire and there's, I believe the water was so cold, honey, that there was sweat dripping off the glass. You say, I don't even believe it. I don't care what you believe. That's what I believe. 
I believe you say, well, where'd the water come from? I just got to believe this, that God reached down in that river in heaven and scooped up a glass full of water, stuck it in that angel's hand and said, hey, I got a servant down there that's about to lose his mind. He don't know if he can make it, but I'm sending him something from heaven that's going to get him through another day, help him walk another mile, keep on the journey for the glory of God. He woke him up and a cake was baking on the fire. He said, get you something to eat. It was so good, it caused him to pass out again. And he woke him up again. He said, hey, are you talking about a good meal the second go around? It was so good. He went on it for 40 days, honey. I'm telling you, God knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you need to get you through. He sent him an angel. Heaven sent him food and fire. But you hear me. Here's where a lot of people miss it. He sent him rest. He sent him rest. Brother John, there ain't no pity party going on under that juniper tree. You know what the man of God's doing? He's resting. You know where most depression comes from? Especially, not depression, but stress and anxiety. It comes from us not learning to rest. God said you're going to rest. He was so resting. He so got away that the angel had to wake, touch him to wake him up. When God, I've never seen this till I was studying this passage. I think it's verse number nine or so, nine or ten. But when the angel woke him up the second time and he ate, he took him to a cave. Forty days. All these people are looking for him. King's got a price on his head. They're all looking for him. God said, here, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to take you somewhere. I don't care where they look. I'm going to take you so far away. They're never going to find you. And I'm going to take you to a place where you can rest. Elijah just sat down and he didn't want to die. If he, I'm always saying, Lord, take away my life. But he didn't want, if he wanted to really die, he'd have just stayed back there and let Jezebel kill him. Then when God said, what are you doing here? He said, I fled from my life. He didn't want to die. You don't want to die, but you feel like it sometimes. Just take your halo off for a minute. Pull them wings down, honey. You've been there and so have I. It don't make you less spiritual. Amen. Fix and prove it to you. He sent him an angel. He sent him food and fire. He sent him rest. He got him to that cave and the Bible said he lodged there. I know you can lodge for a night. I've been lodging at the preacher's house. I told him from now on, every time I come down here, I'm staying upstairs. I'm lodging there. I mean, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to start doing my own thing. I've already made my own key. He don't even know it. I'm just going to let myself in and out. I'm going to lodge there. I know that can be for one night, but Brother Danny, in the context of the Scripture right here, it doesn't mean for a night. And here's what I like about God. You know what God does? He doesn't tell us how long He left Elijah there to rest. You know why? Because if He would have said He left Elijah there 29 days to rest, and you were going through what Elijah's going through, and you got to your 30th day, you would think you were an ultimate failure because God wasn't able to help you like He did Elijah. He don't say nothing about how long. He just put him in a cave, shut him up where nobody could find him, and said, now you rest. That won't help you till you need to go through it. Till you are going through it. Number four, I'm done. Heaven sent an angel. Heaven sent food and fire. But in verses 10 through 15, thank God heaven sent Elijah. Heaven sent Elijah. 
Here's the funny thing to me. He gets finally, he, Elijah gets rested up. God, God gets him up. He brings him. He said, and, and God speaks to him and he comes to the edge of the cave and boom, there's fire. And the Bible said God wasn't in the fire. There's wind. God said he wasn't in the wind. And then there's this earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. Well, I'm not trying to contradict what the Bible plainly says, but ain't God in all of that somehow? But he wasn't in it to the point of getting his attention to show him who he was. But there was a small, still voice. And when he heard that voice, the Bible said he covered his face, walked to the edge of the cave, and God said, What doest thou hear, Elijah? And he tells him, I've been, I've been zealous for the Lord. I've tried, God. I've tried. But all, I mean, there's nobody with me. I mean, doesn't that sound like, God, I've just done all I can do and I just can't do anymore. Two times. But after that second time, here's what God did. God said, all right, I got 7,000. And here's what I want you to do. Two-letter word. Go. You're rested. I got you where I need you to be. There's 7,000 back there. Don't you worry. I'm going to take care of you. Go. Heaven sent Elijah. Thank God heaven was not through with its servant. God gives him all these marching orders. He said, anoint Hazel to be king and do this and do that. And he said, there's a young man down there playing with 12 yoke oxen. When you pass him, he said, you anoint him. He said, he's going uh, to fall. You put your mantle on him. He gets down there. Now watch me. He gets down there and throws that mantle on Elijah. I mean, Elisha. Elijah picks up, Sonny, hit the power of God, hits his life. He starts taking off and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me go back and say, let me go back and tell everybody bye. Let me. And Elijah almost kind of like he almost rebukes him for it. And then he stops and he says, hang on, what have I now done? You know what hit him? I don't want to do to this boy what I just done to myself. And here he said, go back. You tell them whatever you need to tell them. You do whatever you need to do while you're there because where we're going, you may never get back to this place in your life again. And he didn't put him through what he just went through. You hear me? Did I tell you this was a nervous breakdown, not a spiritual breakdown? You know how I know? I'm close. I'm done. Somebody come to the piano. Please. I'm done. You know how I know it was a nervous breakdown and not a spiritual breakdown? Elijah anoints Elijah. I mean, Elijah anoints Elisha. And when Elijah, just not long after, when he's getting ready to die, he looks at Elisha and he says, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And Elisha never hesitated. He said, I'll tell you what I want. I want a double portion of thy spirit. Brother Laddie, had that been a spiritual breakdown, that young preacher, that young evangelist, that young man of God, that young prophet, he would have never asked for that. If that man's life was shattered spiritually, God wouldn't even have let him ask for it. But I'm telling you what that boy saw in Elijah, he saw the power of God, he saw the touch of God, he saw the realness of God after he had went through a nervous breakdown. And here's what he said, I want what you got. I want what you got. Nerves. You can't argue with your nerves. But they'll sure argue with you. 
And I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I do know this one thing. Jesus has a juniper tree. And Jesus has a cave. He's got an angel that will meet you there with exactly what you need to sustain you and get you back on your feet and encourage your heart so that you can go on for the glory of God. We're standing all over the building. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Heavenly Father, it's in Jesus' name I come to you. You see the need in the hearts and lives of your people tonight. I thank you for the liberty I found to preach the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, for how you've helped me tonight. Now I pray that you drive this simple thought deep in the hearts of the minds and in the, in the, uh, the hearts and minds of your people. I pray you'd meet the need that's present in all of our lives. Families, husbands and wives, moms and dads, children, teenagers. Help us not to lose our nerve to live when our nerves break down on us. In Jesus' name.